Welcome to the Red Door Church Sermon Podcast. Red Door Church is a church seeking to transform the city of Pretoria by the power of the gospel. We are distinctly mission-minded, community-cultivating, and city-loving. Please enjoy this week's sermon, and don't forget to follow and continue the conversation by sharing with those around you. For the dramatic reading. It was good. Good morning, everyone. Let's try that again. Good morning, church. Um, I know we're a little bit sparsely sown this morning. I know of a lot of um, the CEO staff can't be here. I know some people are traveling and uh, diving away in Switzerland and all those places. However, it's still good to meet this morning. Don't know about you guys, how you're feeling this time. And maybe it's just my circles and the people that I've been journeying with, but a lot of people that I've been speaking with emotionally have been going through the most. It it feels like a time where emotional tanks have been emptied, uh, things are just a little bit difficult, especially as people have been contemplating the next year and things ahead and planning. And this year, more than other years, I feel like people are just tired. And I've been feeling it myself as well. It feels like I've been running in fumes. And when we were sitting there and we were singing, I'm like, man, how good it is to just gather as the people of God. No matter the number or the size, it's so good to gather with all of you this morning here. And so I hope that not only would it be good to gather as the people of God, but that we would rediscover the gospel, that the familiarity with the gospel wouldn't deter us from once again hearing what God wants to share with us this morning. And so, um, can't believe that we've got two Sundays left in the book of Acts. Then we've um, slain the beast and all the readers and people reading up front will be super happy that we're not going to be reading a couple of chapters at a moment. But it's been immensely exciting um, journeying through this book. And then on the 27th, we're going to have our celebration service. And from there, we're going to have an Advent series. Next week, as Jason said, we're going to have our family meeting and we'll discuss kind of like the the dates and the program until the the end of the year, and also the specific ministry focus that we will have for 2023. So don't miss it. If you want to know more about that, it's going to happen right after the service. Um, Family, a lot has been prayed and said, but I want to pray for our hearts right now as we dive into the Word of God. So let's pray. Father, we do want that to be our prayer, that we would not become familiar with this message, at least to the degree that we stop paying attention to it. We, we will want to know you deeper and more, and, and we know that the deeper we actually look into the gospel, the more we see the infinite depth of application and restoration that it has for our lives. And so we want that this morning, Father, even as I can sense the heaviness not only in this room, but people that can't be here this morning about what the year has had and happened, both in studies and personal life and dramas and families, Father. And in all of that, we pray that we would come and would be restored by you more than anything that we would gain perspective, even as Paul had perspective in his court case. And so help us to once again recognize and see the beauty of the gospel. In your name we pray, amen. Final thing to note before we dive into the sermon, we're gonna enjoy communion right after the service. I'm gonna explain all of that, um, but we pray that God would even uh, prepare our hearts as we're gonna enjoy the Lord's Supper right after the sermon. 
one thing that I think we take for granted, and this is especially true in the corporate world, if you want to gain um, investments, if you want to gain new clients, even in the non-profit world as you want and you seek fundraising opportunities, as you seek people to buy into a certain product, is the art of storytelling. The art of being able to tell and share a story in such a way that people don't just know what you're about, but they actually want to buy into this. It's a really important skill to learn, and it is a skill to learn. Most of us are able to tell a story, but to share a story in a compelling way is a different thing altogether. And it's one that we're probably losing the art of. In a digital world where everything gets fed to us, two things happen. One, I think we, we struggle to actually listen to stories in an effective way. And two, we are unlearning the ability to share our stories. And this should actually be a pretty natural thing, especially for Africans. I think um, this is true for every culture around the world, but especially in, in African culture and all the different African cultures that are represented on our continent. It's been part and parcel of who we are as a culture. People share stories. We come out of oral traditions. It doesn't matter what culture you're from. If you're going to trace your lineage back, we come out of oral traditions where the way that we actually shared values and stories and encouragements and lessons and warnings, the way that we did this and that people have done this for centuries have been through sharing stories. I can still, you, you, you can probably recollect whether it was in a living room or around a fire or somewhere where people started sharing compelling stories about their lives or about their grandparents or people that came before us. And there's something about that that truly captivates us, as it should. And so this morning, the question rather is what is your story? Do you have a story? And more than that, do you have the ability to share your story with the people around you? And what is your story? Do you believe that you have a story that is compelling and worth sharing with the people around you? If you're a Christian here this morning, and if you do hold to the biblical faith, then you have a tremendous story to share. But there might be a lot of you this morning thinking or downplaying your own story, not thinking that you really have the miraculous story to share with the people around you. Maybe even being unsure of how your story and the story of God intersects. You might be sitting here this morning and even unsure if you really are a Christian and if God's story is part of your story. Well, then this morning is a great morning to be diving into this text this morning. You see, we serve a God who's all about stories. And not just about history written, but about rewriting and writing new stories. Our God is the ultimate storyteller. Even the way that he gives his word and his will for his people is in story format. God is the one who wrote stories, is writing stories, and wants to continue writing stories together with us in our hearts. And this morning, we're going to be seeing someone who perfectly understands this. Uh, Paul, the apostle sent by Jesus, is someone who perfectly understands his own story and to see how his story intersects and crosses with the story of God. And in that intersection, we will see what are the things that Paul highlights, what is important for him as he tells his story and he shares his story in a compelling way. 
if you're joining us, or just to bring us up to speed, I don't know about you guys, but the moment we start reading and going into these long narratives, it's really difficult to keep track of where we are in the story right now in the book of Acts. Uh, you just go from one scene to another, and there's all these names, and so it's pretty easy to get lost in the story. And so just give a little bit of context. Uh, Paul is this missionary sent out and called by Jesus to be uh, uh, one that brings the good news of the gospel to the Gentile nations, and he's been doing this. And then in that process, the Gentile churches have been uh, collecting and offering uh, financial support for the church in Jerusalem. And Paul is the one that wanted to deliver that support to the church in Jerusalem. And as he went to the Jerusalem church and to the temple specifically, the non-Christian Jews accused Paul of actually... Um, going against Judaism and defiling the temple. And so they wanted to kill him on the spot. But at this stage in history, Israel have been conquered by the Roman Empire. And so even though they have their local Jewish governance, we still see that the Romans are in charge judicially about what happens in the city. And so the Romans intervene and they arrest Paul. The Jews make the accusations that Paul deserved death, yet they can't pronounce death in him. And so he needs to go through the Roman courts. And that starts a long judicial process of Paul. Um, there's an attempt made on Paul's life in Jerusalem. So he gets sent away to the governor of Felix that needs to trial Paul and that needs to hear the charges bring against him. And they do this, and for a long time, it doesn't seem like there's anything worthy for Paul to be deserving of death. And yet, Felix, wanting to have favor with the Jews, keeps Paul in prison. After Felix's time as governor, we see the governor, Festus, succeeding Felix. And he also, similar to Felix, uh, wanting to have favor with the Jews, keeps Paul in prison. And this is almost to where we get to our passage today. When Festus took over from Felix, he, similar to Felix, was listening to Paul. He was putting Paul on trial in judgment. But because Festus was unfamiliar with the Jewish customs, he's a Roman official that's now listening to the charges brought against Paul, but he's unfamiliar. It sounds like it's something... Uh, cultural, religious, something to do with their temple, he's pretty unsure about what this is. And so he gives Paul the option. He's like, Paul, do you want to go back to Jerusalem and stand trial there so with the people that are more familiar with the Jewish customs? And Paul very shrewdly refuses the offer because Paul knows uh, two things might happen. One, he probably won't get a fair trial in Jerusalem. And the other thing is he's pretty sure, as has happened before, that the Jews will try and kill him, make an attempt on his life, if he were to go back to Jerusalem. And so what Paul does is he appeals to Caesar. What this means is basically in our day and age, it would be like one of us appealing to the constitutional court. It's like, I want to go to the highest court of the land to make sure that my case is heard. And the only reason why Paul, a mere Jew, is able to do this is because he's a Roman citizen. He was born in the Roman Empire, which gave him certain citizenship rights. And the moment he appealed to Caesar, it took the matter out of Festus's hand. Suddenly, Festus couldn't send him back. He couldn't release him. He couldn't charge him. Paul was now in the judicial system. And Festus had to send Paul to Caesar. However... 
This brings us to our text today. It's during this time that we see a certain king, Agrippa, that came to visit Festus. Now, Agrippa is a peculiar character in our story here today. And his family and his family history has had an interesting intertwining intersection both with Jesus and Jesus' followers for the past couple of generations. Agrippa, the second, the one that we read about here today, is the descendant of Herod the Great. But we'll talk a little bit more about his family tree in a moment. But what happened when the Romans took over the nation of Israel is they didn't want to deal with the mess of the local government. Government, And so what they did is they appointed certain Jewish leaders that would have some might and say over the Jewish colonies so that Rome didn't have to get fixated on those things. And King Agrippa was one such king. So he was a Jew appointed by the Romans to handle low-lying affairs because they had more info on the Jewish customs and cultures. Um, for instance, Agrippa was the one that would appoint the high priest, he was the one that would look after the temple in Jerusalem. He was one that would head and uh, go and handle some of the local Jewish laws. And so as Agrippa visited Festus, Festus started sharing about this peculiar character that he had in prison. Um, Festus was saying, hey, I've got this weird guy called Paul in prison here. Um, there's some serious accusations and charges brought against him by the local Jewish government, and they claim that Paul deserves death. However, I've, as far as I could, I've investigated Paul, and it doesn't seem like he's deserving of death. However, Paul's put me in a bit of a bind. He's now appealed to Caesar, and now I've got to send this prisoner to Caesar, but I'm not really sure what to write to Caesar, what the charges are against him. And so, Agrippa, can you help me with this? Help me clarify what are the charges brought against Paul so that at least I have something to write and I don't have egg on my face as I send Paul to Caesar. However, we in the background actually know this isn't true. Festus knows very well what the charges are against Paul. Uh, Festus actually knows that the charges are bogus against Paul and he could have released them. However, similar to Felix, he kept him in prison to one, maybe receive a bribe from Paul, as we heard last week, or two, just to have favor with the Jews. But he's calling an Agrippa so that it almost seems like he's covering his bases. Uh, King or Governor Festus is the innocent party. He's merely going through the right processes. And in this, you can imagine King Agrippa. It's called King Agrippa, but he doesn't have a lot of power. But I'm sure this must have stroked his ego. Oh, the governor, the governor at last needs me. King Agrippa, to come and help shed light on this difficult trial of this interesting character called Paul. And so King Agrippa is like, very well, let's have the man come in, let's see him, and let's address this issue. And this brings us to the courtroom. We read the following in verse 23. If you've got your Bibles, you're welcome to follow along with me, otherwise I'm going to read it for us. It says, so on the next day, Agrippa and, and Bernice came with great pomp. It's an interesting way. And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunal and the prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish petition 
uh, people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against them. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. But before we go into the defense, it's, it's important to understand the scenario what's happening right here, the courtroom scene. It says that Agrippa and Bernice, which is a dodgy marriage if you go read up about it, some incest happening there, but they came with great pomp into this courtroom, meaning that they probably saw this as an opportunity to show off to one another. So everyone had their royal robes on. King Agrippa probably had the purple, long royal cloak on, and Bernice was dry, or, or probably dressed up to the lines. And they came in in procession. And then after them, you had the governor Festus come in as well, probably with his Roman official attire. Then you had the military tribunal almost in a procession coming in, medals displaying nicely, everyone dusting off their boots. They had this pomp. At last, they had a, an opportunity to show one another how important they are. And they came in probably with their whole company and the assistants and the public was there as well and the public galleries. Everyone sitting and waiting and looking at this magnificent tribunal as they are going to interview Paul. And then lastly, it says, Paul was brought in. It's interesting if you go read the non-biblical sources about who Paul was and what he looked like. He was not an impressive figure. And especially at this stage, you can imagine Paul being brought in. He's been held in prison now for a couple of years, going from one trial to the next. He comes in probably raggedly dressed, in chains, and goes, sits in the middle. And this is the kind of audience that's in front of him. History goes that Paul had a bit of a skew nose. Um, he wasn't a tall, intimidating, handsome guy. He was a shortish guy. Think of Paul as an academic, but not the cool kind of academic. He was a typical writer. He actually, by his own admission, as he writes to the Corinthians, he's not a great speaker. Uh, he, he's more the guy in the background. He likes to write a lot, and he's been beaten up a lot in the last couple of years for his faith. And so you, you almost see this insignificant figure of Paul against the major Roman might and pomp in front of him. And not only that, but you have King Agrippa II sitting in front of him. And we've got to understand the family tree of King Agrippa to understand the significance of this moment. His great-great-great-grandfather, Herod the Great, is the one to whom the wise men went and said, a king is going to be born in Bethlehem. And this Herod the Great is the one that wanted to ascertain where so that he could kill Jesus. And when he could not find Jesus, he killed a generation of young Jewish boys, his own countrymen, out of opposition for a future king that might come and take his small power that he had. His son was Antipas. Antipas killed John the Baptist and beheaded him to amuse his guests at a dinner party. Antipas' son was Agrippa I, and he killed James of Zebedee with the sword himself. And now we have Agrippa II, son of Agrippa I. 
And so you've got this legacy of the Herods. They let the Guptas look like good people. You've you've got this legacy of the Herods, and this is the guy who's now putting Paul on trial. And it's phenomenal to see Paul's opening uh, line. Paul, undeterred by the occasion, not impressed by the pump, and not threatened by the human institution, his opening line and his witness says, I count it, or it's fortunate that I can speak to you, King Agrippa II. It's phenomenal the way that Paul summarizes the situation without even fear speaks into it. He is quite literally on the trial for his life. And yet he is undeterred. And what Paul then does, and we've heard this many times in the book of Acts, but Paul shares his story. And it's a compelling story. And what I want us just to pause on this moment is the two or or the elements of the story that Paul shared this morning or was shared back then when he was on trial. And so two major elements of Paul's story. One is his defense of his faith and two, the testimony of his faith. As Paul starts sharing, he knows that King Agrippa II, how corrupt he even might be, but he knows King Agrippa II is a Jew, and so he knows how well-versed King Agrippa II must be with the Jewish faith. And so what Paul starts doing is he starts telling and sharing and showing how his faith is not a newfound faith. Rather, he starts sharing to him and to everyone in the, con- in the courtroom for that day the historicity of his faith the historical ground for what he believes in. That whatever Paul believes in, whatever claims he's going to make in future, this faith of his, his religion did not fall out of the sky. It's actually been something that's been developing over the past 2,000 years. It's something that you can trace the history and the lineage back. It's something where you can actually see that there's been promises made, prophecies made, fulfillment and covenants made long before Jesus came on the scene. And so what Paul is trying to share with his audience is not just how this connects with history, but this is an historical event. And this is very important for us today as well. Especially in a day and age where we think we're the first ones to question supernatural. Now, this happened back then as well as we see Festus does. But what Paul is showing them very clearly is this isn't an airy-fairy faith. This isn't something that he simply believes that fell out of the air. No, this has something that has historical merit to that. And not only that, the way that his religion has been building is rational as well. Paul is showing how his life events and the life events that happened before him is rooted in rationality, meaning that not only is his faith historical, but it is a rational faith and can engage with anyone on a rational level. And lastly, Paul shares that his faith is not only historical, it's not only rational, but his faith is an answer to a deep, felt need that we all have and that we all actually wish would be true and that is the answer of what do we do if this is the end what do we do if death has the final answer and the final say 
And so Paul builds his defense how his religion isn't a way of just coping with life, of just having your best life now. No, his religion, his faith, answers the deepest burning question that we all are going to encounter in our lives one day. What do we do with death? And what happens after this? Because if death is the final stop, then surely our lives are meaningless and we are to be pitied above all people. Paul then goes on and he shares that story of how this is built and he links up the history of his faith and how he comes into the picture, his own story. But what Paul does brilliantly he does share his story, his upbringing, how he was a Pharisee and the way that he was walking after this, this religion. But what he then brilliantly does is he shows how his story intersects the story of God, how those two paths cross. And at this crossing, the thing that characterizes this story and this testimony of Paul above all else is he shows how Jesus is the hero of the story. What Paul is very clear about, and there, there are other elements about the story that I'm sure, uh, depending on the length of time that Paul had, he could have elaborated on. How, you know, he first had to go to the disciple Ananias, how he was blind and healed from blindness, and then he went into the wilderness for three years, and then he came back to Jerusalem. There are many other things that he could have shared, and yet, for the time allocated to Paul, he's like, if there's one thing that I want these guys to recognize, it is who is the hero of the story? What is the climax of my story? And he is very clear that Jesus is the hero. And not only is Jesus the hero of the story, but there's a very specific time of Jesus' life which is the climax of the story, which is, yes, the crucifixion, yes, Jesus' death, but more than that, where is the focus here? Where is the line that draws the line between Christianity and Judaism? between Christianity and other faiths, between Christianity and any other hope that we have in the world, it's the resurrection. And Paul doesn't shy away from that. He doesn't try and make it a muted argument so that it's more palatable for the political, social, even scientific community that he's speaking to. He's very clear that not only is Jesus the hero of his story, but that the resurrection is the climax of that story. And it's at this point that Festus interjects, he's almost losing faith, face, because Paul has been journeying two years with Festus. It sees, the, the, the previous text says that Festus was actually looking for a bribe from Paul. And so every day he was spending time with Paul, hoping that this would be the day that he would get a bribe. And meanwhile, Paul is just getting the opportunity to engage with him with conversations about uh, righteousness and judgment and life after this one for two years. But Festus wasn't prepared for Paul to share this in the courtroom. And so he's like, Paul, Paul, <laughs> surely not. You're losing your mind. You can see that he actually has quite a bit of respect for Paul and saying that your great learning, Paul's a rational guy. He's an academic. Your great learning is driving you mad. Paul's saying, no, Festus, this is rational. We've spoken about this. Don't be embarrassed now. This is rational. This is the only answer that we have. This is the only way that we can actually ascribe meaning to anything that is happening in this reality. 
Paul calmly engages his objections. And then we see Paul transitions as he ends his engagement. He, he goes with his defense into a plea. And he says the following in verse 27. Read with me. Uh, chapter 26, 27. He says, King Agrippa, you believe the prophets. I know that you believe. It's amazing how Paul is finding the common ground between them to share this message. Courtroom is silent. What? Prisoner is speaking directly to the king. The king has to respond to almost save face, but he can't go into an argument with Paul right now. Otherwise, it almost seems like he's viewing, viewing Paul as the same level as him. But, but King Agrippa deflects and says, Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. We see the single-mindedness, the ultimate desire that Paul has that people would not only hear the story, but the, the people would respond and accept the good news of Jesus. He had this desire to keep on doing what he was doing. Even though he was in chains, his desire to obey Jesus, to make disciples, to see people come to Christ. And even though Paul is loyal to Jesus and to the story. Lastly, we see it doesn't always necessarily bear the fruit that we want it to bear. However, from this, we've got to ask the question. Paul has spent, I think, many nights and times reflecting on his own life, reflecting on how Jesus has really changed him, how Jesus really commissioned him and sent him to the nations. And he's, we, we've spent time on this in the previous weeks, how he's used his circumstances, how he used his upbringing, how he uses his platform to share his story. But ultimately what Paul is doing, he's carving and he's refining on the story to show to everyone involved that his story is believable because it's rational. That his story is true, it's rooted in history. And more than that, his story actually answers a fundamental desire that we all have in our hearts, that we want to go from death to life. And so family, this morning, we've got to ask, what is your story? What is the story that you can share with the people around you? Do you know your story? I think in a fast-paced world, it's so easy to assume you, you almost know what, what are the big mountain peaks of your life that has influenced your life to think a certain way. And more importantly, if you're a Christian, do you know how your story has intersected with the story of Christ? And can you share that story in a way that Jesus is the main character, that he is the hero? And that the resurrection of Christ is the thing that actually saved you from your own story. I've heard many testimonies before, and w w which is great, and, and I love people sharing testimonies. But I think we need to look at how Paul is sharing his story, and we need to learn a couple of things. Sometimes we get sidetracked by the secondary and tertiary things in Christianity, which plays a part in our conversion, which is important in our discipleship, but it's not the main thing. 
And so it's so good when we share, I grew up in the church and the church had this formational effect on me and I read these books and I've been studying the Bible or I went to this discipleship and this guy really discipled me and through that I gave my life to Christ and now my life has changed and I'm still being discipled. Those things are important to share because we want to we want to highlight the gift that God has given us. But more importantly, similarly to Paul, are we making sure that do we know what our story is? Do we know what God's story is? And do we know that Jesus is the main character? And that even as someone has been discipling you, do you know that the actual good news that you've tasted is the fact that Jesus is risen, that your old life is dead, and that you are alive in him? Yes, let's get credit. Let's show those gifts of the church. But we need to carve out our story so that as we share it, people are under no illusion. Man, Jesus is the highlight there. So much so that if you were to get pushback, if you were to get objections, it would be about this, that it would be about the gospel, that at least people would reject the gospel and not some other part of your story. That we can deal with. You guys see how amazingly shrewd Paul was even in sharing his story. Paul, the, the only thing that Paul did was he started answering questions. Guys, ask him the questions, and Paul shared his story. His story was so compelling that it necessitated a response from the audience. And so what Paul was doing in his relational building with the people around him is that he gave himself the license to share the gospel. I think there's a time and a place where we are more direct and we can talk to people and saying, hey man, do you know Jesus? Have you accepted Christ? You know, this is pretty serious. They, they, I think there's times and scope for that. But I think what we miss oftentimes and what seems daunting, and it either seems like it's either the you go to someone and say, you're gonna turn or you're gonna burn, or it is the we don't say anything at all. Whereas most in the biblical stories, we see what people actually did is they had the relational capital with the people around them, where they didn't tell other people what they should do, they shared their own story. Most of the time, we don't like the attention on ourselves, and so we just look at other people. And so there's a couple of skills that we can learn as, as a church. One, a great skill to have is to ask good questions of other people. Ask them their stories. Let people tell you about their stories and listen to their stories because it's building a bridge so that you can share in a reciprocal manner. And as we ask people their stories, what will inadvertently happen is they are going to ask you, what's your story? And depending on the context and how long you've journeyed with them, start sharing your story and know your story and know how the different streams of the story intersect so that you will get at a stage. If you're a Christian, you should get to the stage where you can highlight the main character and that you can explain certain parts of the main character. And again, Paul is a phenomenal example. He's the apostle. He is emboldened, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Sometimes in the book of Acts, we saw handkerchiefs were taken on him and people were healed. So this is, not, this is a pretty impressive guy. And yet... Not everyone responds positively to Paul's sharing. And so the way we share our story, we don't measure it always by the response we get. A lot of the times people might respond. Some people will come to faith. Others will object and others will accuse. 
that's not where we measure the success. We simply want to continue creating those relationships and those spaces where we can share about who Jesus is. Man, this is what he did in my life. This is what happened in my life. And I'm sure as I'm, happening, as I'm sharing this, one or two things are happening. One, you're a Christian and you've been for a time and you don't think that your story is all that impressive. Or two, that you're familiar with Christianity or you're even hostile towards Christianity and the story hasn't interchanged or interlinked yet. So two things, and then we're done. The first is to our Christian brothers and sisters who think that your story isn't that impressive. You, you're like, man, I didn't have a Damascus story where I went and the light shone, boom. I'm like, oh, who's this? And now my life changed. Now I'm different. It's, it's more like you, you always knew about God and Christ, and there's a time where you didn't believe it as much, but now you find yourself to believing. Uh, but it's not like this dramatic, I was a drug addict stabbing people, and now I got stabbed by the gospel, and now I'm saved and I'm different. No, it's so... It doesn't feel that dramatic. And if that's you this morning, then you're missing the power of the gospel because you're somehow believing that through your own moral character and upbringing that you made yourself to be the person you are today. You're giving yourself way too much credit. Can I say, you're worse than you think, actually. <laughs> you're actually not so cute and you know, well-dressed and all of that. No. The only reason that you were able to grow up in a Christian household, to continue to hold on to grace, and that God shielded you maybe from some bad experiences is not because of your ability to say no for those things. It's His grace that protected you. It's that the story just intersected way earlier than even you might have realized. But even still in that, Jesus is the hero. And you can share, man, I don't know when it happened in my life, but there was a time where I was unsure or didn't know a lot because I was young, I was three, I was four, I was five. And then there was a time where I really did believe in Jesus. And I can see how that gospel message and grace has protected me and has been with me and has been continually changing me. If you're a Christian, it always has to be that intersection story. If it's not there, if those stories are running parallel with one another, then we've got to ask our second question. Has the gospel truly changed you yet, or have you just become familiar with it? And so again, family, if you do consider yourself a Christian, look at your story and see how it is a dramatic courtroom event. Maybe not with the pomp as Paul, but any person that has been saved has been dragged away, rescued, ransomed from everlasting death to everlasting light. It is a phenomenal story. It is earth-moving, earth-shattering oh, events got to recognize how great a grace is that has kept you and that you are we are today because of the grace of God. For the second part, maybe, where you think that it's intersected, but you've somehow drifted, or it feels like you've been living parallel with the story for the whole of your life. Here's the good news. Here's why the gospel is good news. The story of intersection is actually not how great your life looks like even after the in intersection. Oh, I was like this, Jesus saved me, now I'm a totally different person. No. The story of the gospel is actually for people that have failed. 
The story of the gospel is for everyone that felt and have tried but have not been able to be the moral good person or be the type of person that they envisioned themselves to be. The message of the gospel is actually those that are now in darkness, that don't see any way forward, that haven't been able to lift themselves out of the mud and dust themselves up and to be actually acceptable to Christ. The gospel is for those people. And the story is actually not what you have done, but what Christ can do in you. And so the invitation for you this morning is, there's nothing in your story that has to change right now. There's nothing and no person that you need to be to be able to intersect with Christ. Rather, the story of the gospel is you were living in a direction and recognize that Jesus came out of nowhere, swooped in, and he came to rescue you. He was in heaven, happy, good with God the Father, and he decided to become God incarnate. He decided to live the perfect life. He decided to give his life, and he decided to be raised again. So family, with that, we're transitioning into communion. This is what communion is this morning. Communion reminds us of the story of Jesus. And it's both the invitation and the affirmation of most of our faith. It is a physical thing that we're going to enjoy right now so that we are reminded this morning that this is a historical fact that happened. This isn't an airy-fairy faith. No. Jesus actually really lived, and he actually really died, and he was actually bodily, physically risen, and is now with the Father. So that's the one part, even as we use the elements this morning, as we use the bread, we see that his body was broken so that we get spared the punishment. We see that his blood flowed so that the new covenant was inaugurated. The second part is, it is a reminder of the miraculous, of what Jesus came to do in all of our hearts. And so if you're a Christian this morning, I invite you to use the elements of the Lord's Supper. If you're not yet a Christian or if you are unsure about the stories of intersection, not about how good you are, but have you ever come to that space and time where like, that's right, I'm in darkness, I need rescue, Jesus save me from myself. If you've not yet come at that crossroads, I would invite you, do not use the Lord's Supper. This is a Christian supper. However, there's no seats at the table. The table is open, meaning that this is an open invitation even this morning. Maybe this is your crossroads where God invites you to come and trust in Christ. And so I'm going to pray for us in a moment. What we normally do here in Red Door is, is we, we like to keep it an atmosphere where you can do business with God and you can pray and you can have your moment with God, but it's informal. And so the informality of it uh, almost, or informal nature of it uh, uh, communicates that we're family, but we still keep it a space where you can use the elements, you can pray by yourself or you can pray with someone, and we just want to give a time for that. And after that time has passed, what we're simply going to do is we're going to end off with a song from the band. And so let me pray for us as we prepare our hearts to use communion. Father, we confess that sometimes as we listen to other stories, as we read about stories, that we have somehow journeyed a time with you where we think, that our story is any less miraculous, ascribing more than our, to ourselves than what we should. 
not recognizing how the gospel both guards us, how the grace empowers us, and how your grace changes us. But we once again, even as we use communion this morning, we want to communicate that anything that we are today, that we have, any love, any sympathy, any humility, any change that we could have had in our life and even future in our life, anything that is good comes from you. And we want to praise and love you this morning. We want, Father, that you would embolden and empower us, that we would be people that are eager to share these stories with the people around us. And yes, to be shrewd in the way in times when we do this, but at long last to be storytellers and to be people that believe that we have compelling stories because you're involved with it. And Jesus, you are the main character. We love you. We thank you for that. We thank you for the resurrection because without that, what do we have? What, what a hope do we have in South Africa? What a hope do we have that any good would come from all the suffering that we're experiencing right now? But yet, as we drink the juice and we eat the bread, we are reminded that we have hope because you have risen. For that, we love you and we thank you. Amen. Family, we're going to have some time at your leisure. When you're ready, you can pray. And when you're ready, you can get up and you can use the communion. Watch out for our projector. It's right at the edge there. And then hold on to your cups and we can deposit them at the back when we're done. Let's have some communion together.